there should be an X marks the spot here. <laughs> See, where is the centre? <laughs> it's up there. Well, we are here, and it's been a different week, hasn't it? <laughs> Just a little bit different. Don't have the cyclone very often. Oh, look, there's a bit of... Yeah, Aaron, you're right, it was the storm. But we're here, praise God. And I had that sense that the, the Lord was looking after us. I mean, there was a lot of apparent damage, but very little real damage for us. So thank you, Lord, for that here. And uh, interestingly, I'd been led some time back to preach on Zephaniah on the day of the Lord. And the cyclone might have given you a little bit of an <laughs> indication of what the day of the Lord might be like. Well, we'll hold that happy thought. Well, let's ask the Lord to uh, guide us as we look into the book of Zephaniah. Gracious Father, we thank you first for your protection. Thank you that we are able to still gather this week after a cyclone. We thank you for the reminder and the strength and power of that but you are the one who created the whole world. So your strength and power is awesomely, infinitely greater than that even. And so we want to hear what you say and take notice this morning. Amen. Yes, so it's only a small book, Zephaniah, three chapters. And if the books were organised in alphabetical order, it would probably be the last one, Zephaniah, Z. I had thoughts in my... When I was young, you always lined up in alphabetical order. And who was always at the end of the line? Zephaniah. <laughs> so this, uh, this book is also called one of the hottest books in the Bible, in the sense of prophetically hot, because it's got a very intense message. And I see that you're fiddling through and going, Zephaniah, where is that? <laughs> well... I hope you'll find it in your index there somewhere. And what's the message? Quite simple. Judgment is coming to all the world. All the world. Oh, okay. But blessings will follow for those who take seriously the warning to repent. So rebellion, that's going to bring judgment. But if there's genuine repentance, then God in his mercy and grace is going to bring about restoration and blessing. And we could all go home right now because we've got the message, but we won't, sadly for you. <laughs> so the name Zephaniah means Jehovah hides. And this guy was a royal descendant. King Hezekiah, one of the good kings, there weren't very many of them, he was his great-great-grandfather. And so some people call him the royal prophet. He prophesied only to the southern kingdom to Judah and his prophetic contemporaries, you could name them as Jeremiah and Nahum and Habakkuk. So let's look into that scripture and see, pick out the heart of his message and we'll start in chapter 1 verse 2 where he's talking about a coming judgment for the whole earth 
at a time called the day of the Lord. In one verse 2, starts off and said, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's a pretty sweeping statement. Oh, okay. Sweep away everything? Wow, that's, that's decimation of a major scale, isn't it? I will sweep away, he says, both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. The great day of the Lord, we go down to verse 14 now, is near. It's near and it's coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry that day it'll be a day of wrath it'll be a day of distress and anguish a day of trouble and ruin a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and blackness a day of trumpets and battle cry against the fortified cities against the corner towers I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Should have had a PG warning, shouldn't I? Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Your bank balance isn't going to help you out. In the fire of his jealousy... The whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Well, there's quite a bit more about it, but you get the point, don't you, about the day of the Lord. It's not going to be a holiday camp. So that's the first half. What about the second half? The possibility of avoiding that calamity, you personally avoiding that calamity that you've heard there. And we go... Click over to chapter 3, if you would, from about verse 9 onwards. Chapter 3, verse 9 to 20, where we find a restoration of Israel's remnant. And he says here, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From where? From beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs that you've done for me because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I'll leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. This remnant they will do no wrong. They'll tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They'll eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, he's with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, 
they'll say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I'll deal with all who oppressed you. I'll rescue the lame. I'll gather in the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they've suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I'll bring you home. I'll give you honor and praise amongst all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. And so there's the good side. And one way of understanding this book of Zephaniah is from the carrot and stick perspective. You know, love and discipline. Boundaries. Some people say that's the way you train a donkey. You have a carrot for when he gets it right and you have a stick for when he gets it wrong. And eventually he works out one way is better than the other. Not so easy with little human beings though, is it? I'll give you an example. A young boy is sitting in the corner because he's in timeout, not looking very happy. He's in timeout. And when it's after over, he comes and he asks mum, he says, God can do anything he wants, can't he? His mother said, of course. And the boy then reflected, hmm, God doesn't have any parents, does he? <laughs> we need our parents, but we also want to be free of them. And it's only as we become adults and we look back on our childhood that we see that we actually weren't ready for the complete freedom that we wanted. We needed discipline. We needed instruction. And yes, we resisted mum and dad, our parents, and maybe sometimes we feel the same way about God. Maybe we resist him. We know our Heavenly Father loves us, but we don't always appreciate his tough love. You see, God loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He loves us too much to leave us that way. And so he works with us. He guides us. He chastens us. And that's what, one of the things we learn from the prophet Zephaniah, that genuine love involves correction. God may give a time out, or in this case, far worse. Because true love can mean tough love. You can't enjoy freedom without responsibility. We may resent having to face the consequences of our actions, but we can be really grateful that God never abandons us. He loves us enough to be involved in our life at every point because he's guiding us, he's protecting us every step of our journey because he's mighty to save. So much for the carrot and stick. What about the historical context? What's going on at the time when uh, Zephaniah is uh, prophesying? We've got the nation of the Jewish nation that he's talking to and they've been compared to a person who made a fortune lost a fortune and then got it back again and this time we've got King Josiah who's on the throne in Judah and he had instituted several religious reforms particularly removing idols and pagan shrines and 
Perhaps the preaching of Zephaniah had some influence in this revival. Perhaps this prophecy we've heard about of the day of the Lord was used as fuel for that revival. It was certainly needed because the people were very backslidden at that time. They had turned back to their old ways. They had grown indifferent to spiritual things. There was unbelief. There was just general apathy. It was prevalent. And in comes Zephaniah, sort of with a spotlight, a lantern, shining on that backslidden situation. Because we see in chapter 1, verse 12, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I'll punish those who are complacent. And so we learn from Zephaniah that we can't afford to be indifferent about God. When God sees his people becoming complacent, he often sends a trial to wake them up. And unfortunately, the people that Zephaniah is preaching to, for the most part, are just shrugging off the warnings about God's coming discipline. And Zephaniah looks at them and he describes these complacent people as wine left on the dregs. Apparently, when you're making some quality wine, you pour the liquid into one container and it settles for a while, and you pour it into another so the dregs settle out of it and you keep it from thickening because if you don't pour it out it just becomes bitter and that's what they were like they weren't pouring it out they were just letting it sit there in chapter 1 verse 12 at that time I'll search Jerusalem with lamps that's the spotlight and punish those who are complacent who are wine like wine left on its dregs not poured out you think Lord won't do anything, either good or bad. And this is the view that sees God just as a kindly, remote, ineffective grandpa. He wouldn't punish them. He's always nice. Well, we've got to ask ourselves, do we see God that way too? It's good to check ourselves out and, and see whether we truly do believe that God is upset about our sins our large ones or our small ones to see whether we are taking responsibility for our, all the parts of our lives it's good to ask ourselves well what lifestyle changes would I make if I truly believed God was upset with my sin have I been slipping backwards in some arenas of my Christian life am I a backslider in some area am I slipping a little here and there and we need to hear this morning Zephaniah's warning that the day of the Lord is coming. That's a stick to remind us that there's a carrot waiting for us if we just reset any backslidden area of our life. What we find in, in Zephaniah's talk about a remnant. A remnant is a, a, a small pocket of belief in an unbelieving world. It's those people who remain faithful in spite of the pressures of the day, in spite of the temptations. And, you know, as I remind you, Zephaniah's name, which means hidden of the Lord, might refer to these relatively few, this remnant who are hidden of the Lord, but have not forsaken their God. And 
seems entirely appropriate to see Christians as a remnant in a largely post-Christian Australia. And it's entirely appropriate to see the promise of the restoration of Israel as a promise for all Christians, all believers, the restoration and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And all the qualities which are going to which we see in Zephaniah about what life will be like in the restored Jerusalem are the qualities, the central qualities, are the same as what we'll see in heaven. So let's go now and look at that phrase, the day of the Lord. It's used 19 times in the Old Testament, it's used four times in the New Testament, and it, it refers to a period of time when God is working in a way which we recognise, not always understood, Perhaps it will be past, the, the near future. We, we don't know the hour or the time. But it's a time of judgment. It's a time of wrath. It's a time of darkness and gloom, of God pouring out his anger upon mankind. And it's a time when God's will and his purpose for the world and for all mankind are going to be fulfilled. Not just Zephaniah talks about it, it's in Joel, it's in Matthew, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Daniel. And they all talk about a day of tribulation and trouble which is unlike anything else before it. And what I found out from my research on this week was that it doesn't just refer to a 24-hour period because the Hebrew and Greek words used there can mean a 24 hours or an age or an epoch. And in Daniel 9 and Revelation... You see a seven-year period of the day of the Lord. It's an extended period of time. If you look through this, all the scriptures, you see many events prophesied for that day. And in Revelation, it, it, strains, it stretches from the time of a ruler making a covenant with Israel through the seven-year tribulation, through the time of the second coming, through the kingdom of Jesus being established on earth to the destruction of the old heavens and the earth. Lots of things in there. But put it all together, it's a time of wrath, a time of judgment in which the Lord will punish the world for sin and pride. But the good news is, besides being a time of judgment, it will also be a time of salvation for the faithful. But something needs to happen to move from the one side to the other, and that is repentance and faith. People need to change their way of thinking to move from the one to the other. And Zephaniah urged his listeners, he said, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. Do what he commands, not just an idea in your head, it's doing, and seek what? Righteousness. Seek humility, that you may be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, so humility we don't need. You need to do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So what are the qualities of this restoration time? Because one of the main things that interests me about Zephaniah's prophetic portrayal of a restored Israel is what qualities of life and living does this restored situation contain because I want to know what life will, like, will be like after the day of the Lord. I want to know where we're going. I want to know the destination so I can be prepared so that I'll be 
maybe building those qualities into my life and my character and my lifestyle now because I don't want there to be a big super jump from what I'm doing here to what it's like in the next life. I want to be living towards the life to come because if that's where I'm going, that's what I want to be living. I want to be living that way as much as I can already and growing towards it. So to get some clues about us, about that, sorry, let's work through what we see in chapter 3, verse 9 onwards. An interesting phrase in verse 9, then I will purify the lips of the people. Hmm. In the New King James Version, it says, I will restore to the peoples a pure language. And the Amplified says, then I will give to the peoples clear and pure speech from purified lips, which reflects their purified hearts. You think back, the confusion of languages, you know, there's so many languages in the world, that confusion of languages was what? It was a penalty for a sin, probably the idolatrous sin of building the Tower of Babel, wasn't it? Let's look at Genesis 11, remind ourselves what people said. Then they said, come on, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And a tower that reaches into heaven or points to heaven could be seen as an idolizing of the heavens because they had their false god of the heavens, Bel. So they're sort of like, he's their idol. They're worshipping that, that, that thing there, that idol. At the very least, it's just being rebellious against the will of God. And as a counter to that, what happened on the day of Pentecost? This penalty of many different tongues was removed when everyone heard the gospel in their own language. Interesting. And if you think that the, f the full restoration of the earth's unity of language, you know, one communication uh, language, that's yet to come. And it is it's connected, as we see from Zephaniah, with the restoration of the Jews. And uh, it's connected, of course, the conversion of great multitude before, the, before God at the end of time. And whether we're all going to understand Hebrew, I don't know what it'll be. One day, though, we will all be of one mind and one mouth, and we'll all glorify God. Paul reminds us in Romans 15, 6 of that, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're heading to heaven with only one language, with purified lips. We'll all be able to understand each other. Interesting little thing to find there. And then we will serve with one consent. That means shoulder to shoulder. See that in verse 9. I'll purify the lips of my people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Literally, you, it's your shoulder or your back. And that's a metaphor, a word picture of a yoke where a burden is borne between two of you, where you help each other, where you work together. And who are we going to work together with? Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus, where he says, Take my yoke on me and le learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So there'll be teamwork after the restoration. There'll be shared burdens and therefore lighter burdens and therefore companionship together 
in the service of the king. And it says people will be drawn from beyond Ethiopia because Cush, the land of Cush is considered to be the land of Ethiopia. Uh, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. And whilst there's some disagreement amongst the scholars as how the Jews and Ethiopia are connected, it is apparent that Jewish worshippers are going to come from as far away as Ethiopia to worship in Jerusalem. And that's probably symbolic of it's going to gather believers from the whole earth. Who will not be there? In verse 11, we see that arrogant boasters will be removed. Haughty people evicted. I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. Who's going to be left behind? Meek people, humble people, that I'll leave within you. And uh, 3 verse 12, the meek and the humble. And it'll be a remnant. It'll be a relatively small group of those who trust in the Lord. We see in the second half of chapter 12, of verse 12, the remnant of Israel, and this is their quality, they will trust in the Lord. What else is the quality of life in this transformed period? No wrongdoing, no lying, no deceitfulness, no fear. They'll have no one to make them afraid. See that in verse 13 there. They'll do no wrong. Tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. Those things are all good, aren't they? And some people, the devil likes to put it about that heaven's going to be a sad place and you're missing out on all the fun. Well, what does it say about that in verse 14? There's going to be singing. There's going to be shouting. There's going to be gladness. There's going to be rejoicing. Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. It's going to be a happy place. It's going to be really great. And I guess those people who don't like singing much are going to learn to enjoy singing in those days. <laughs> Punishment will be removed. Enemies turn back because the king is with them. There's no need to fear being harmed. We see that in verse 15. The Lord's taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is there with you. And never again will you have to fear any harm. I like the picture in verse 16 there of no limp, fearful arms. Have you ever seen uh, depressed people dragging themselves around limply? All the stuffing's been knocked out of them. Been none of that after the restoration. On that day, verse 16, on that day they'll say to Jerusalem, don't fear. Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. <laughs> uh, and why? Let's put up verse 17. So, uh, the mighty warrior hangs with you. He abides with you. He stays with you because he's delighted in you. He's not going to tell you off. And he'll, he'll even be singing happily as he hangs around with you. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Wow, that's good. Interesting. 
we have a look at verse 18 there, people hankering for the good old days are going to be gone. People hankering particularly for religious observances as the way to be right with God instead of heartfelt faith. That's what's in there when he says, I'll remove from you all those who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you because they're trying to work their salvation. They're trying to make it themselves. They're trying to be good enough themselves. They won't be around. People of faith will be around. And uh, there'll be some comeuppance for oppressors. Disabled people, the lame, refugees, exiles, they'll be honoured. Let's look at verse 19. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. Hallelujah. Deal with those guys. And I'll rescue the lame. I'll gather the exiles. And interesting, refugees or exiles, that's, you know, they don't feel honoured in their foreign countries, do they? But he says, I'll give them praise and honour in every land where they have suffered shame. So he recognises uh, the plight of refugees. And verse 20, it'll be a homecoming. Homecoming is a powerful concept. All those peoples of the earth will be forced to acknowledge and respect Israel as a sovereign nation when they see on this time and in this day its economic, military and cultural power restored. And he says in verse 20, at that time I'll gather you, at that time I'll bring you home, that's the homecoming. I'll give you honour and praise amongst all the peoples of the earth. So it'll be respect shown when you come back. You won't be creeping in with the tail between your legs just hoping to get into heaven. And when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. The restored time is going to be great. That's a picture of some clues for us about how good it will be. So these prophecies from Zephaniah, they of course were before Jesus came to the earth to be the perfect sacrifice to pay for all the sins of the world. And so the application for us today is that the day of the Lord is still coming. Very true. It's still going to be terrible. It's the disciplinary arm of God. And its purpose is to make us turn around and look for the carrot carrot of life in the restored kingdom of God which is absolutely joyful, it's free, it's wonderful and all you have to do is accept by faith that Jesus did die on the cross in your place so that instead of you paying the terrible cost for your sin Jesus paid it. Trust, believe that and live obediently out of that belief and you will be there to enjoy the restoration And just as the day of the Lord will be a terrible time for those who won't look at the carrot, let me remind you that the motive for the disciplinary day of the Lord is not to get his anger off, but the motive is love. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. He does it all out of love and a desire to spend eternity with all of us. But he is perfectly sinless. And he needs to have your sin purified in order for you to be in the same room as him, to have the same eternity as him. Perhaps a 
contemporary true story will demonstrate the nature of God in this respect. You know, in 2016, there was a, a collapsement of four buildings in Wenzhou, eastern China, and, and 22 people were killed and only five survived. And after they worked through the rubble, 12 hours working, and then the rescue workers discovered the final survivor, who was a three-year-old child, wrapped tightly in the arms of her dead father. Wu Ningzi was found buried deep in a massive pile of crumbled cement because these, these buildings, they're old, they're poorly constructed, they're overcrowded, they're rain-soaked, and migrant workers had been working there because, you know, hundreds of millions of people in China were coming out of the countryside to try and find work in the cities. Uh, but they were poor, substandard housing. What they discovered was this three-year-old girl, Wu, who alive when they removed a thick cement pillar and they found her father's body draped over her. He'd shield her from the crushing weight of the building. He was 26 years old. She, only minor injuries. And the worker, one worker told the reporters, the child was able to survive entirely thanks to the fact that her dad had used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for his daughter. Friends, that's what Jesus has done for us. He came to be crushed on our behalf, to die on a cross for our sins that we could live forever, forever with him. God's judgment came crashing down upon Jesus who used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for us. Let's bow before him. Lord, that's just another picture of what you have done for us. You have used your own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for us. Lord, I'm just amazed that you gave us human beings the freedom to choose whether or not to return the love that you first gave us. I'm just amazed the living beings, us, we haven't given ourselves life. Amazing that we would even consider that, sorry, amazing that so many of us don't consider that you who gave us life might want worship and honour as a natural returned response, a response to the very gift of life we enjoy day by day. Well, we look forward then. We acknowledge you and we look forward to the day of the Lord and we seek to prepare ourselves for the restoration that comes after it by adopting a pure and holy lifestyle now we've seen what it will be like we've seen who will be there we've seen what it will take Lord enable us to be pure and holy in that same way that we might know the sure hope of being there after the day of the Lord in the restored heaven and earth. And to that end, we commit ourselves in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.